Sunday morning. Greg, you didn't look like you were sure. So how are we doing? How are we really doing this morning? Are we persevering through whatever that might be that we're persevering through? Health, broken relationships, lack of faith. The test if we're persevering through well is the verse that Kevin just read. Are we rejoicing in all circumstances? Because whatever that thing we're persevering through is a circumstance. And Paul in his letter to this church at Philippi says we ought to be rejoicing. We ought to be persevering. And throughout history we are given many examples of those who have persevered, meaning those who continue to put effort towards or do to achieve something of great difficulty or had great failure or opposition. Those who persevered even to the point with little prospect of success. There once lived a man who went to war as a captain, but he came back through no circumstances of himself, came back a private. Since his military career was over, he went into business during a, a time of his nation that was very prosperous. He failed in business. So he became a lawyer. And he was considered too impractical, too temperamental to be successful in the field of law. So then this man turned to politics. He was quickly defeated in his first campaign for his state legislature. He was then defeated for a desire to be the general land officer for his state. He then was defeated for the United States Senate. And then he was defeated for the vice presidency of the United States. He tried for Senate again and he failed. Despite all these defeats and just a few short victories along the way, this man persevered and in 1860, Abraham Lincoln became president of the United States. Who was the leader of his country for just four and a little bit short years, led the United States to its greatest moral, its constitutional political crisis that was its civil war. Showing great perseverance in becoming presidency, not giving up along the way, he preserved the union. He set the places in place to abolish slavery. He strengthened the federal government, he modernized the American economy. And because of this, because of his character, because he persevered, guess where Lincoln's rank with the list of presidents? Usually at number one on the list. place, a position, an office he would never have achieved unless he persevered through what he persevered through. Both in his path to becoming presidency and the trials he faced both politically but also personally when he was in the White House. That's Lincoln's example of perseverance. As Christians, I hope you understand that we're called to a much greater level of perseverance in this world. Because we're called to persevere in this world for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel. 
Philippians chapter 3, a chapter earlier than the one that Kevin read, says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal to the prize, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. These verses are in the verses that Kevin read in our scripture reading this morning, are from Philippians, a, a book that Paul wrote near the end of his life, and by all accounts, as he was waiting to be executed for his faith. He wrote, Rejoice always, again I say rejoice, knowing that a death could happen any time the jailer came open his door. He wrote back to the church that he loved that he founded on the second missionary journey that we're looking at here in Acts, that we began to look at in Acts chapter 15. We're going to look at today, going through your Bibles, Acts chapter 16, verse 16. We're going to pick up the narrative today of how Paul founded that church in Philippi. He founded that church, quite frankly, through perseverance. Through persevering for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the gospel. And in our passage today, we see four things that Paul and company have to persevere through. That he persevered through a spiritual attack. He persevered through a physical attack. He persecuted being falsely incarcerated. And he persevered through false accusations. We begin at verse 16 of Paul and company, meaning Silas, Timothy, and Luke, continued to go outside the city to that place of prayer. If you remember the last time we were in the book of Acts, that it was there outside the city that they saw their first converts in Europe, Lydia. And so they continued praying with her at that place that was designated outside the city where like-minded people would go. And one day, we read in verse 16, as we, Luke was reporting, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her over as much gain by fortune telling. It shouldn't surprise us that they faced a spiritual attack because they were praying. Praying is a spiritual discipline that when it happens, we should not be surprised when there's a spiritual attack. As is the case here, Ephesians chapter 6, armor of God, it's a spiritual battle. We're called to pray at all times. Paul and company were praying, and now the spiritual attack comes in the form of a slave girl who had a spirit of divination or, or prophecy. She could tell the future. And apparently she was quite good at it because she made a lot of money for her owners being a slave girl, doing so. Yet when Paul and company shows up, this girl, and we should make no doubt, she was controlled by the forces of evil. Attached herself to their, this company of men. And began crying out, verse 17, These men are servants of the Most High who proclaim to you the way of salvation. What she said about this party is absolutely true. Right? They were called by God. They were called by God to proclaim the gospel. But through what she says and how she operates, we see how the Father lies works to this party, but also to us here today. He speaks the truth when it works his purposes out. The 
disguising himself as, as somebody who's like-minded as an embassy of the light. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Why would Satan send demons into people to disguise themselves like they're like believing? Because it causes much confusion for believers and for this world. As is the case here, we'll see. I hope we understand and, and know that some of the most effective diabolical work accomplished by our enemy has been done with the appearance of being done in the name of Jesus. Nothing's been done for Jesus, just done with the appearance of being done in the name of Jesus. Case here with this slave girl in this company of missionaries. From the outside looking in, it would look like she's agreeable with the Christian preachers that are going around. Therefore, from the outside looking in, she would be seen as somebody as part of this party. Therefore, if she spoke, people would listen, thinking that this is the way to God. This is why Paul finally rebukes this fool Satan. Verse 18, and, and this she kept doing for many days. You remember after the teaching this? He's this nattering people. This, this lady was running around the whole time for many days. Look, look at who's here, look at who's here, look at who's here, look at who's here. And Paul finally has enough. Has Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. We should understand, Paul's rebuking her not because he's annoyed with her. He's annoyed at the spirit that is possessing her. And they're making her do what she is doing. There's a huge distinction between being annoyed at the lost or being annoyed at the one who's guiding the lost. How often do we get annoyed at the lost rather than getting annoyed at the really spiritual battles that's going on and being annoyed at the one who's controlling the lost person? Paul recognized that this slave lady was lost. She was ensnared by the enemy and rebukes the enemy that's controlling her. Also, God didn't want Satan to gain any more publicity that he has through this. And one swift command, he rebukes Satan's attack against his party and frees this girl from the spirit that was enslaving her. And the demon came out, showing all that God's power is so much greater than the power that was controlling this lady. We understand that, I hope, today. That we'll never defeat the enemy's schemes manual task in our own abilities, in our own wisdom, in our own strength, in our own cocoons of safety that we think we're in. We can only defeat the enemy and his embassies through the power of God. Ephesians chapter 6 again. Paul tells us, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
not only did Paul have company and his company have to persevere through spirits of spiritual attack, they also faced a physical attack. Because if you make your money through somebody else, like a slave girl who tells a fortune and somebody delivers her from that demon, all of a sudden your revenue stream dries up. The slave owners got mad at Paul and Silas because their easy life was gone, so they grabbed Paul and Silas and hauled them in front of their rulers. But when the owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Remember that where they're at is the Roman colony. Roman colonies at that time were controlled by two individuals, patrols or magistrates, as it's translated in the English Standard Version. As part of their office, part of their role was obviously to provide the judicial means for people to take grievances to them to decide who was right and who was wrong. This is what's happening here. Verse 20, they bring in front of these Paul and Silas in front of the magistrates, and they said, but notice as we go on past verse 20, what they say and what really happened is two different things. There's something else going wrong along here. What they say is designed to invoke anger, to invoke compassion for their position, for their side. We never do that when we're mad. Do we ever bend the truth? Never, right? Well, these guys are mad, and they invoke the magistrates in the past in the crowd's prejudices. Verse 20 ends in 21. These men are Jews. And they are disturbing the city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Apparently, anti-Semitism is alive along in the first century. At this time, in the Roman Empire, Emperor Claudius issued an order expelling Jews from Rome. That spread across the empire where Jews were seen with contempt. So they started off saying, these men are Jews, dumb acting both people's prejudices. Much like in our culture today. They're Muslims! How many of your blood pressures have gone up? They're Jews! And they got the desired effect in their false accusations. They achieved the outcome they wanted. Verse 22 the crowd joined in and attacking them. A riot broke out over these men, Paul and Silas causing the magistrates to lose control of the situation. And in order to save face and keep the peace, they had Paul and Silas. Notice there's five men in this group. Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke. Four, sorry. They only had the Jews arrested. They only had the Jews beaten. They let the Gentiles go. Because they didn't have any prejudice. joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into threw them into prison or into the jail to keep them safely. The jailer, having received his orders, takes them off and puts Paul and Silas in the maximum security section of the prison because it's the inner part of the prison. They are in the part where you get, get no light. They are the part that is most protected, the most likely you can escape from, maximum security. And their legs are put in stocks. 
Now, don't think I'm stocked and just seeing these things that you see that just keep your feet. These are stocks designed to spring the legs over all your possible to inflict the most discomfort on men that are already in. Now, put yourself in their shoes or put yourself in their stock. Put yourself back in your shoes when bad things would happen to you. When that report came from the doctor, when that relationship broke down, when that wrong happened to you. How did you respond? How do you think Paul and Silas should respond to this situation? For some of you who are reading, that's great, but try not to look ahead. Put yourself in their situation. Would be mad. Would be kind of grumpy. Kind of upset. Where are you, God? We've all had situations like that, haven't we? If you've read the Bible and never read the Bible and read the church for the first time, they have a prayer and worship evening. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Why would Paul and Silas' reaction be what it was that night? Why would they praise God under such con conditions as the lice was eating in their hair, and who knows what the rats were doing? These men understood something that is quite lost in Christianity today. That praising God does not depend on circumstances. That praising God does not depend on circumstances. That's why Paul can write what he does that Kevin writes in Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So if you're in a prison cell, your legs are spread out like that, and rats are doing whatever to you, you can rejoice in the Lord, just as much as we can rejoice in the Lord. When the doctor says this, when that person says, I hate you, when this happens and that happens and this happens. Because our command is to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. See, Christian... Rejoicing is not based on their circumstances, as Paul and Silas demonstrate. Christian joy is based on the sovereign God. The sovereign God of the universe who controls everything. Because if we ask anybody, even an atheist who doesn't believe in God, you say, well, if there's a God, what do you think he is? who do you think he is? They'll say he's pretty high and mighty. Some will even say that if the God exists, he controls everything. Most Christians would say, do you believe God controls everything? Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Except in the bad times. Except when things aren't going our way. Except when fill in the blank. We all sound our theology that fills up the window. We actually create a version of God that's not true according to what he says in his word. See, if we believe in God, then we believe that he's in control of everything, which means he's in control of even the bad situations. 
why we can take, you want to look at that as boy? We can take Thomas in Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Because if God is sovereign, he can work out good through that. Therefore, when trials and sufferings come, believers can take comfort in the truth that God is in control, even when the world seems like it's spinning all out of control. That God is at work in and through our circumstances for our ultimate good. What's our ultimate good? That we live a peaceful, joyful, prosperous life? Or that we live a life that's holy and pleasing to God? That God works together for our ultimate good, and he works to get for his glory. John MacArthur states that the problem with sad, miserable Christians, who are you a sad, miserable Christian today, are you? Have you ever been a sad, miserable Christian? It's not their circumstances. Because if we think that being a Christian means that all our circumstances is good, what do we talk about? What do we do with our brothers and sisters in Africa who are living six on a hut floor in dirt? John McCarthy says the miserable Christian is not their circumstances, but their lack of living a spiritually controlled life, a life that understands who God truly is. We read the beautiful creed this morning. It's an awesome foundation. It's based on this word. This word that was given us to God, from God, to tell the world who he is. The trouble is, when bad things happen, we start actually believing in false theology because we don't believe in the God of this word. We believe in the God of our head. This isn't supposed to happen to me, God. If we are spirit controlled, we'll be guided to who God declares He is in His Word, despite our circumstances. All of Silas' reaction to the circumstances here underscores the reality of the important truth in living the Christian life. How Christians live and how they react aggressively to who they believe God is. Not intellectually, but here. I'm a lion story, anybody bolder than a lion, the nose of the whole eight great bolts. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Not just in Sunday school, not just in church. But when we get in a car accident. But when we're thrown in jail under false accusations. The history of mankind, as it goes on, will probably show that no people has ever risen above about its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Have we seen something in our world that has becomes more and more post-Christian in our culture, that society will never rise above its idea of who God is. Worship is pure or based as the worshiper is entertained by highs or lows thoughts of God. 
goes on, for this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself, and the most propitious fact that any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he is, his deep heart conceives God to be like. In other words, what do we think God is? Who God is? These moments that we live. It's not just on Sunday morning. It's like playing ball on a Monday evening, or watching a hockey game on a Wednesday night, or going for coffee in the morning. We tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move toward the mental image of God. We all have them. This is true not only on the individual Christian, but on the company of Christians that compose the church. I, the most revealing thing about the church, is her idea of God. Again, not our doctrine, not our statement of faith, but what do the individuals who make up the church believe God is throughout their lives as they live in this world? Paul and Silas, as they sat in this dirty, dungy dungeon, did not base their theology on their circumstances. They instead evaluated the circumstances in the light of what they knew to be true about God. And that prompted them to sing. That prompted him, them to pray. Because in doing so, they expressed their trust in God that there's, he would use these circumstances for their ultimate good and for his glory. Spurgeon, the, Charles Spurgeon, the priest of preachers, said, It's easy to sing when we can read the notes by daylight, but the skillful singer is he who can sing when there is not a ray of light to be read by. Songs in the night comes only from God. They are not in the power of men. Paul and Silas knew where the power resided that could help them through their circumstances. Christian, do you? Verse 26, they didn't have to wait long. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prisons were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were, un were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. In that time, the jailer's penalty for letting a prisoner escape was the maximum penalty of any prisoner that got to help. In this prison, there must have been someone facing execution. This jailer knew that he was a dead man because he assumed that the prison doors were open, the cell doors were open, everybody flew the coop. Therefore, he'd rather take his life in his own hands rather than be tortured to death as he would have been. Thankfully, Paul shouted out in verse 28, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. I have no idea why all the other prisoners never ran. That's a topic of sermon for another day. But I just find out the little tidbit like, ah! <coughs> Remember Paul and Silas were singing, they were praying, they were talking, and the prisoners were just they must have had such a gravitational force about them for their response to their circumstances that even the most hardened criminals didn't run away. Paul's voice in the earthquake, no doubt, 
was a sailor, sailor, jailer, to ask them the most profound of profound questions. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Suddenly the gospel. That they probably heard, because this white lady, remember, was talking for days. He probably heard rumblings in the community. He had definitely heard them singing and praying in prison. He definitely woke up when the earthquake happened. This gospel of the power of God makes sense to this jailer. In verse 31, Paul and Silas says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, was the household saved on profession of faith of the jailer? No, because in the next verse, we hear that Paul and Silas went and talked to his household, explained the gospel, became the faith. And as confirmation of the jailer's faith and the salvation, him and his household were baptized. Also, Luke gives us an interesting piece of evidence of the transformation power of the gospel. See, jailers of that era were usually Roman soldiers who couldn't soldier anymore. They were either old or too badly wounded or too badly crippled. But they were pretty hardened individuals that didn't really have much compassion as they killed so many people in their lives. But Luke records that this hardened jailer, ex-Roman soldier, received salvation, then took Paul and Silas and washed their wounds. <clears throat> then took Paul and Silas into his house and fed them. See, that's the transformational power of the gospel. It turns literally darkness into light. A person headed for hell <clears throat> to towards eternity. Verse 34 ends with, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And we would say that with the jailer and his household receiving faith and rejoicing over the faith that they had, that Luke would end his narrative at this point in time. But he doesn't. Because there's a matter of Paul and Silas' the false accusations that were over them that have to be dealt with. This is why the next day, for a reason, the magistrates decide to release them. And Paul and Silas refuses to leave quietly, verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent you, sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. How many of us would this, this But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. Oh, you're going to be taken out in another way, talking to magistrates like that. See, Paul and Silas, being Roman citizens, were actually exempt from being, exempt from not having a trial. They, every Roman citizen was guaranteed a fair trial, to the point that they could appeal their case up to Caesar, which Paul will do later in the book of Acts. Therefore, in simplest terms, Paul and Silas were wronged in the treatment that they received as Roman citizens. Now, we don't know why he didn't say anything the day that they were the captain of being Roman citizens. Maybe he did. Ever been in a mob scene? People gently listen. They just did what they thought was right and called them off to jail. 
But Paul forces the issue now by stating who they were, they were Roman citizens, and then the magistrates come to escort him and Silas out of prison. Now, this probably never happens to any of you. When I'm mad at somebody, there's a tendency in me to want to stick the knife in and turn it. Even when they say sorry, you know how much pain it cost me? I want to get my common flesh on those person. That never happens to you guys, does it? We might think that that's what Paul's doing here. He's being vindictive, making this magistrate come down to the jail to export them out, Paul and Silas out. But he's not actually being vindictive personally. He's more concerned about the reputation of the gospel of Jesus Christ here. Because if they left secretly, what would the whole town think about these preachers? They were lawbreakers, they were disturbers of the peace, they were hauled off to jail. What would that reputation mean for the early church, that church that was planted in this town, if Paul and Silas is left? Paul, being bold, said, no, you got to come here. Because in doing so, when you do something publicly, that at least will set the record straight that we weren't lawbreakers, that we weren't problem makers, that this gospel does not stir up dissension. In verse 38, I love the meeting, the flying the wall, and the police went back and reported to the magistrates what Paul and Silas said, but notice the response of the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. See, these masteries recognize that they had a real problem to deal with it now. Because they allowed two Roman citizens to be beaten and thrown in jail without a trial. If word got back to Rome, I'm going to be out of a job. Maybe even out of a life. So they go back with their tail between the legs to the jail to save their own skin. Paul put them in a corner that they have to respond to. Oh. He was wise in how he interacted versus just being vindictive. So the magistrates went to jail and they apologized to Paul and Silas. They escorted them out. Could you imagine the coffee shop the next morning? Did you hear what happened? They went to the jail and those criminals, they apologized to them. They escorted them out. Maybe they weren't wrong after all. Verse 39, so they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. Something that Paul and Silas did, because I think both parties recognized the awkwardness of it, that Paul and Silas stayed in the city, because some people don't like little wheels very carefully, and they might still try to accuse Paul and Silas of this. And the gospel would be harmed. But also Paul and Silas do, showing true Christian forgiveness. So, Let's face it, if you were thrown in jail nowadays and beaten, what's that worth? Six million dollars? Paul and Silas this week. They realized the gospel work would go on without them now. That they were persevering for the sake of Christ. They went out, as the verse 
40 years with of the prison and visit Lydia, the first convert that they saw in Europe. And when they had seen the brothers, and more converts now, they encouraged them and departed. See, Paul and Silas did this for the sake of the gospel and the sake of Christ. The same reason, the same reason they persevered when they were falsely accused, when they were falsely incarcerated, when they were falsely beaten, and when they were under a spiritual attack. So as we conclude today, what do you persevere for? What do you find worthy enough to persevere for? Because if we don't find anything worthy to persevere for, we'll never persevere. How many of us were persevering through the playoffs because of the game that was going to wipe the cup? And how many of us are not watching hockey anymore? Any Chicago Cubs fans? How many years did people persevere for? How many generations lived and died hoping that the Cubs are going to win the World Series? How many of us have persevered through something and that thing that we're, the object that we're focusing why we're persevering on in the end let us down? My money. My health. My Alberta that will never change. My job in the oil patch. I hope you understand that almost everything in this world that we place as an object to persevere for will in the end fail us. So many know this thing of that firsthand. There's only one that will not fail us. There's only one worthy enough for us to focus on in order to persevere through all the stuff that we experience here in this life. And his name is Jesus. And what God has for us in him. That's why in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, For where your treasure is, where there your heart will be also. God is in our heart that's true to who he says he is in his word, it'll carry us through everything. But how many of us keep God off on the peripherals? And then we wonder why we never persevere. Going back to our history, history illustration, how many of us would persevere for a living? I'm not sure where the man's faith was. Somebody says to us, we don't look good today. We're on the floor in a fetal position going, Aah! we can't persevere through that. Because we put the focus on what we persevere for on the wrong thing or the wrong person. Romans 8.28 again tells us one of the many reasons why only God, only Jesus, Christ is the object that we can persevere, that causes us to persevere things. Because he's the only one that can take bad circumstances and turn them into good. That's the promise. What sort of bad things have happened to your life? How many of you have given up on God even on What 
until they're bad things have happened through history. What hope would we have if there's no, there's no God and the Holocaust happened? That Stalin happened. That, that sickness happened. That, that relationship breakdown happened. That, that death happened. What's the most heroic crime that's ever been committed in this world? And the question is, did God create for good? I've said before you the most heroic crime ever being perpetrated in this world has been when God came and we killed him. Wasn't when I got a hang out. God came to this world, he walked this earth, we hung him on the cross and he died, yet we called that day what? Good Friday. That's Romans 8, 28, 20 else. We see it played out in this passage today. The group withstood spiritual attack. They withstood being falsely accused. They persevered through being beaten, through unjustly imprisoned. They persevered. And what good came out of that? Did not a jailer and a household come to faith? Did not a whole bunch of prisoners hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because this group decided to persevere because they based their, not their joy in God, not in their circumstances about who God is. How about us? What do we do when the going gets tough? Do we trust the God who can take his son's death and resurrect him and therefore give us salvation to take whatever wrong we have and turn it for good, for his glory, and ultimate good? Do we persevere? So the next time, maybe we're facing one of those situations right now. Maybe we will tomorrow. Are we going to persevere rather than run away? And if we persevere, what's in the outcome not for us, us, but for those around us who watch us, who see us as living examples of the gospel? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are God who can change the most devious wrong and make it glorious. We see examples of it throughout your word, throughout history, and we pray that we be living examples in this world.